Romans 8, 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And Father, we humbly ask for the help and the assistance of your Holy Spirit to have an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church from this portion of your word. So, Lord, you know what that means in me and each one of us here in this room this morning. And we just ask that you'd prepare us accordingly, just physically, mentally, spiritually, that you would quicken us and give us even a desire and an expectancy that you have something that you want to say to us this morning. Give us an open ear, a receptive heart, and that we would respond to what it is you say to us. Bless your word by your Spirit's ministry. Speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, is it possible this morning that you could actually be having an identity crisis? You know, I looked up what that actually means, and the identity crisis is defined as this way. It's internal conflict from being confused about what type of person you are and what your life's purpose is. Let me read that again. An identity crisis is an internal conflict from being confused about what type of person you are and what your life's purpose is. Now, I understand that comes from a psychological standpoint, but I think sometimes that actually can happen to people spiritually. That in a sense, they can have a spiritual identity crisis. That they're honestly, truly confused about who they are spiritually, and they're honestly at conflict within because they really don't know what their life purpose is. Well, for such a struggle, this particular text helps in that area. The passage in front of us seeks to clearly address to know exactly who we really are spiritually, what our condition is before God, and more than that, then what that means regarding our life's result. Romans chapter 8 is a chapter of how the Christian life is really supposed to to be lived. There are a lot of ideas out there and perspectives of how to follow Christ and what it means to be a Christian. Well, Romans chapter 8 is just this pinnacle and this wonderful diamond set right in the middle of the book of Romans that teaches us how the Christian life is really supposed to be lived. And that is not by observing regulations, not by following a list of requirements, but by having a relational experience with God. 
having a relational experience with God every day. Again, not in the efforts of human strength, not in self-resolve to do this and don't do that, but in a relational way, experiencing the empowerment of the Spirit of God Himself who resides within us and gives us supernatural enablement from within. The background, remember... The last thing Paul had just said in Romans 8 verse 4, which leads us to where we're going this morning, was a descriptive statement regarding the life of the believer. He made a declaration that really described how as Christians we are now marked by living life differently. He said at the end of chapter 4 regarding the Christian that we are those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's a descriptive term of what the Christian life is supposed to be like. We are those who now, because of our salvation in Christ, we do not walk according to the flesh, but we now walk according to the Spirit. We once lived directed by the desires of the flesh, but now we are guided by the higher law, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ, that now as a higher law directs and guides our life in Christ. And he's going to expound now more upon what he means there at the end of verse 4. And the next verses that we go into really set us a contrast between the saved man and the unsaved. He's giving us here a description of the differences that characterize the identity, the defining marks of the saved person in contrast with the unsaved person. And the first thing we'll take note of, and again, if you're sort of a note taker, verses 5 through 8, what Paul will talk about is the inward prompting or the inward persuasion of the saved versus the unsaved. He's going to say they're completely different. The inward prompting and what persuades a saved man is now different than what prompts and persuades the unsaved person. Look with me in verse 5. He begins by saying, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. So he just said as a Christian, we no longer walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He now wants to expound upon what he means by that. So in verse 5 here, he identifies now a sharp contrast of the inward prompting of the saved man versus the unsaved man. He identifies the unsaved person here in verse 5 by referring to them as those who live according to the flesh, those who are still being guided and directed and inwardly influenced by the carnal and sinful nature predominantly. And then he refers to the saved or the born-again person as those who are now living according to the Spirit as the result of that relationship with Christ and the Holy Spirit moving within us. And now the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the old law of sin and death. And now our lives are governed and directed by the Spirit's influence prompting us within. Now regarding the unsaved, he first tells us in verse 5 that the unsaved or unconverted person who lives according to the flesh, that they, he says, will set their minds or their mindset, the idea is they're bent, the mindset of the unsaved is on the things of the flesh. So what he's speaking to us here about is he says the unsaved man will always be inclined towards the things of the flesh. They will always, in a sense, have their bent or, or their, their aspirations, their interests will be upon the things of the flesh. And that's because their natural condition 
causes them to be prompted primarily by the sin nature. The presence of the Spirit of God is not within their life yet because they haven't accepted Christ. They are spiritually dead. So their way of thinking is going to always be bent towards the things of the flesh. That is, their mindset is typically on temporal matters. They're living for temporal concerns because that's the realm, the sphere of life experience that they know. They're living according to the lower nature still. So they're inclined towards what is material and focused upon what's material and eat, drink, and be merry. And this life is the only experience they really are awakened to. So therefore, their inclination and their bent is going to be directed towards things like self-indulgence and sinful behavior and how can I satisfy and fulfill myself. And that is the bent or the persuasion of the unsaved person. That is how we live. Before I came to Christ, that was the bent of my life. Automatically, what prompted me within was what was material, what was sensual, what was temporal. That was what sort of governed and directed my life within. Now, in contrast, once a person is saved, the Bible says that changes. He says in verse 5, going on, but those who live according to the Spirit are going to notice have their mindset upon or their mindset will be upon the things of the spirit. So the saved person, he says, they're bent, they're overall bent. That doesn't mean that we can't still go back into the things of the flesh, but the overall bent of the saved person is going to be after the things of the spirit now. Instead, a change has taken place. The mindset within us has changed. The Bible teaches us that as a Christian that we have, it says, the mind of Christ. So as a result of that, now our overall bent as a Christian is towards things that are eternal, towards things that matter to Christ. We're interested in things like pleasing God and finding and fulfilling the will of God. And the interests of the saved person is going to be related towards the things which are spiritual, the kingdom of God. All of a sudden, the overall bent in my life, I found when I got saved, it changed. Where before I didn't really have any interest in uh, the people of God or Christians, when I got saved, all of a sudden, now Christians became my most favorite people. I wanted to be with Christians because there was a sense of a family connection where before I had very little interest or aspiration to want to read the Bible. When I got saved, that overall bent changed within and the things of the spirit was what I was now inclined to as the spirit was working in me. And I then wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to see what God said about matters. I wanted to know how God wanted me to live. All of a sudden now I found interest and a desire to want to pray to want to talk to God. It wasn't just in a crisis moment, calling up an SOS once in a while to the big man upstairs to get me out of a jam. No, now there was a relational thing and because God became my father and I was a child of God and I was awakened to that reality and Jesus became my savior and my Lord, I wanted to communicate to him. It became natural to have conversation with God in prayer. And all of a sudden, I had an interest in attending church. And my life now wanted to be, in a sense, useful to the things of God. And I wanted to use my life to serve the Lord. And the point that he's making here in verse 5 is because of that awakened spiritual condition, the overall bent of the Christian changes and the point of verse 5 is the mindset or the overall bent of the saved and the unsaved, they're completely different. 
the overall bent and the overall aspiration and mindset of the unsaved person, it's going to be on the things of the flesh because that's all they know. That's the condition they're in and so therefore it characterizes the bent of their life where the saved person that transitions and now their overall interest and mindset is towards the things of the spirit. A change happens. He goes on to say in verse 6, for to be carnally minded... Another way of saying what he just said in verse 5, for to be carnally minded, he says, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So he now describes here how whatever persuasion or prompting is sort of governing us within and whatever we allow ourselves, therefore because of our condition, to be prompted towards or persuaded towards, that is going to have an experiential result in our life condition. That's what he's talking about now in verse 6. He says to be carnally minded, to have a mindset that is constantly persuaded towards the sin nature and the things of the flesh. He says that is a life that will result consequentially in death. And what is death? It's loss of life in its simplest form. So he's saying the consequence, the fruit, because there's always fruit and there's always a consequence to sinful living or living after the things of the flesh he says the consequential result will be death again we have verses in scripture like we saw in Romans 6 the wages of sin is death that that sin pays that there, it does pay its participants it pays its servants it pays them with death with loss in their life. The Bible says in the Old Testament, the soul that sins shall surely die. And whenever a carnally minded person lives according to the promptings of their sinful nature and their flesh, it will result in various forms of loss. Many who carry out their sinful thoughts, is it not true, end up destroying their lives. Literally. It's a self-destructive way of living. Those who submit to the persuasions of their sinful promptings will put to death the abundance of life that God had intended for them, but yet they rejected that by living after the things of the flesh. And sin always ultimately destroys life. It's what it does. It destroys life physically, Leads people to self-destructive habits and lifestyles, suicidal you know, tendencies or just substance abuse that just destroys a person's body or, or maybe just living in a way that's really just a very self-destructive, haphazard way of living. And it always leads to death and to destruction. It's a self-destructive path. It destroys life as well relationally where sin destroys marriages and families and relationships and it robs life out of what God intended for people to experience relationally. It certainly destroys life spiritually as it robs, kills, and destroys the good things that God wanted to do in a person's life if they would have come to him in a relationship. It, it destroys people emotionally, mentally, psychologically. The result, the consequence of being carnally minded and living after the things of the flesh is always going to be death, destruction, loss. Now, in contrast to that, he says in verse 6, however, again, it's a contrast, but to be spiritually minded, he says, that will result in life and peace. So when the overall bent of a person's life changes as a result of coming to Christ and being born again and the spirit coming into their life and their overall bent making them now, as verse 5 said, 
making them live after the things of the Spirit and pursue the things of the Spirit, he says that results in a consequence as well in a different way. It results in something much more wonderful, the exact opposite. That leads to an experience of life and peace. To be spiritually minded yields life, that is, an eternal quality of life, a spiritual quality of life. A life that is enhanced now on this earth and eternal life that will last forever and ever. That's the reward of living after the things of the Spirit. You begin to experience the real life that God intended for people to experience. Jesus made this declaration in John's Gospel where Jesus said, I have come that you may have life, and that more abundantly. So Jesus says, listen, I didn't come that you would just have a physical existence and, and eat, drink, and be merry, and then die. No, he said, I came that there would be an abundant quality to your life. The idea is a life the way God intended, a quality of life that it has an abundance, a fulfillment to it, a life of meaning, a life of purpose, whereby you know the reason that you exist and you participate in that through a relationship with God and his son, Jesus Christ. And he says, not only is it life-giving to be after the things of the spirit, but also he says, when a person is spiritually minded, it also produces, notice verse six, he says, it also produces peace. Now, is that not true? That when you pursue the things of the Spirit and you live after the things of the Spirit, you find as a result, experientially, peace enters into your life. Because as Romans 5 says, you become at peace with God. And that eternal internal battle and conflict that rages in the conscience and life of every person until they settle the issue of their sin and submit themselves to their creator in the way God intended through Jesus Christ, there's a conflict and a war that rages inside of a person. The Bible tells us, there is no peace, saith the Lord, for the wicked. And, and God purposely leaves the conflict and the turmoil in a person's life until they make peace with God. And that happens through the Lord Jesus Christ. But once you get saved, what happened? All of a sudden, there's that internal sense of, ah, it's well with my soul now. And, and once you come to Christ, you know that there's this experience of, of there's an inner peace within that was never there before. This calm, this rest for your soul. Life is still chaotic and crazy, absolutely, but there's an internal sense of rest now. It's okay within. And not only that, the Bible then offers to us the peace of God, not just peace with God, but the peace of God, where God gives to us his peace in life's storms, where the sea is raging and the winds are blowing against us and, and we're being tossed to and fro and we should be as seasick as anyone we know. And yet God somehow gives us his peace in the midst of the storm and there's that sense of internal peace where we know that God is with us and he's on our side. And not only just peace experientially, but I think too, part of living after the Spirit also brings peace relationally. Because in a way, unlike before, when a person is living after the things of the Spirit and they're spiritually minded, they're going to experience more peace in their relationships with other people. Because they are seeking to follow what the Word of God says regarding how they conduct themselves in their relationships. And they're seeking to listen to the Holy Spirit that when a conflict arises or there's a problem relationally or they're just trying to live out their life in relationship with their spouse or their children or other Christians or people they deal with because they are living according to the prompting of the Spirit within them and they're listening to how the Spirit tells them to live, and because they're following what the Spirit of God has written in the Word of God, 
there will be a lot more peace in their relationships. It will be a more peaceful experience with other people. Well, Paul now goes on verses 7 and 8 to sort of then take a moment and further expound about the problem of the mindset of the unsaved person. This seems to be what he focuses in on here in verses 7 and 8. He wants to talk a little bit more about the miserable experience of living a life in the flesh. He says, because the carnal mind, again, is enmity against God. For it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So again, he's back to referring to the unregenerate person, the unsaved person who lives in the sphere of the flesh. Their overall bent is to live after the things of the flesh, to be carnally minded. And he said the result of that mindset, first of all, is it leads a person, he says, verse 7, to be at enmity against God. Uh, That word enmity there, some of your translations may render that hostility. That's the idea there. To be at enmity means to be hostile, to be antagonistic against, to be even hateful toward God. I think the real key here is that word against. That life, a life in the flesh, is a life that's lived against God. The natural bent, the thoughts and interests and aspirations of the unconverted person is against the person and the ways of God. It does not cooperate with God. It doesn't cooperate with the will of God or the ways of God. Instead, it always goes against God. Whether consciously or unconsciously, that's what's happening because that's the bent and the internal prompting and the persuasion that they're being guided by is the promptings of the sinful flesh. So they have opposing thoughts and desires to God. They have opposition and they live against the agenda of God. They work in opposition to the will of God and it makes them function as an enemy of God. If that were not enough, verse 7, he also says that the carnal mind also, look at it, he says, is also not subject or submitted to the law of God. The idea there is the mindset of the unsaved person is not submitted to the truths or the standards of God's word. Uh, They live in such a way that they are not surrendered to the truth of what God's word says. And there's a simple answer for that. Because they're not personally submitted to God himself yet. And because they're not submitted to the authority of God himself, of course they're not going to be submitted to the authority of God's word. Until they're first submitted to God, they'll never submit to what God's word says. In fact, he's going to say at the end of the verse there nor indeed can they be. It's not even possible. It's not even possible to do such a thing. So as a result, the unsaved person, their thought process will will function in rebellion to what the truth and authority of the scripture says and their automatic bend in the flesh will be towards what they think or perceive is right in each situation. Because in a sense, they are still the authority in their life, their own perspective and mindset, what they think is right or best in a situation. However, they view things from their natural point of reason is the way in which then they'll process and handle things. So they'll refuse, again, whether consciously or unconsciously, to submit to God's word. And I tell you this, they're not going to be willing to change their mind or repent. Uh, The reason being because from their perspective, what the word of God says, no matter how clear it seems to you if you're saved, from their perspective, what the word of God says and its truths and its standards, it's foolishness. 
It's unrealistic. You know, it's Victorian. It's it's unreasonable. I mean, that's just that's 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 just beyond reason. I mean, it's just you can't really take that for what. And it's, to them, it's just it's foolishness, unrealistic, unreasonable things that are stated. First Corinthians two fourteen says, "The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned." See, that's why when an unsaved person hears of some of the truths or standards of the Word of God or they see you living according to them, it's just foolishness. Or you try and communicate it and you're thinking, I'm making this so clear. How could this not be clear? It says it right there. I mean, it's, it's so evident, right? But from their perspective, it's foolishness because their overall bent is like living life in the dark, it's the same room, same situation, but this room will look radically different if we shut all the lights off and we walk through it as compared to with all the lights on. See, that's the difference. He's saying they, they can't be even submitted to the Word of God because it's foreign to their mindset. It contradicts the way natural reason works. And because they are living in that shaded perspective, like with sunglasses on, it's a darkened view, they have a different in a sense, limited perspective that's unclear. Ephesians 4 says they're living in the futility of their mind. That there's a, there's a darkened mindset that still exists because they haven't been illuminated by the light of God and the presence of Christ in their life. So that results in that condition, which then verse 8, the ultimatum of that lifestyle is he says, those therefore in the flesh, they cannot please God. Now listen, it does not say that an unsaved or unconverted person can't do good things, because a lot of them do. There are a lot of unsaved people who are not following Jesus Christ that do wonderful things. They do generous things. They do helpful things. They build hospitals. They you know, help out charities. They are maybe even kind, servant-hearted people. It doesn't mean they can't do good things, but what the Bible says is the overall bent of a person's life is to live according to the things of the flesh, and their mind is not submitted to the word of God, which tells them that they need to believe upon and receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and they therefore cannot, he says, even follow what God's word says. He says that no matter what good they do, they'll never be able to please God. They'll still never be able to please God. They will live in that condition continuously. He then says, in contrast now, addressing the saved person, the Christian, verse 9, but you, it's a contrast now, you're a Christian, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So he says, since we're now living according to the Spirit, we are able to please God. Only because of what he's done within us, there's nothing special about us other than his grace has invaded our life. And he says, therefore, our continuous motivation should be to do the exact opposite of what the unconverted person does. So in other words, if verses 7 and 8 describe the carnal mindset and overall bent and way of living, the contrast is the opposite should be true, correct, of the spiritual man of the spiritual woman, of the saved and converted person. In other words, our mindset, instead of being against God, our mindset should be in cooperation with God and his ways. 
We should have an attitude and a prompting within that says, you know what, I want to find out what God's will is because I want to cooperate with that. I don't want to work against it. I want to cooperate with what God wants in this situation. I want to cooperate with what God's will in this situation. And our inclination should be to want to submit our thoughts and feelings to what the Word of God says. In the same way the unconverted person, he says, they're not submitted to what the Word of God says. The exact opposite should be true of the Christian. Do I have thoughts that contradict the Word of God? Oh, you better believe I do. Lots of times. Do I have feelings within at times because of my carnal nature still to want to live in contradiction to what the Scripture says? Most certainly. But as the Bible itself says, nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? See, as a Christian, I accept the fact that God is the authority in my life and therefore God's word is also the authority in my life. So no matter what I think about a situation or how I feel, I want to submit, I must submit by faith my thoughts, my mindset, my perspective to what the word of God says. And the spirit of God that wrote the word of God is prompting me to do that. Tony, you need to submit to what the truth of God's word is. It doesn't matter what you think right now doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter if it seems unrealistic or unreasonable. Or how would that work? That's not going to work out. No, no, he's, you submit to what the Word of God says. And the Spirit prompts us to do that in a very different way. And when we do that, what's the end result? We please God. The unsaved can't please God, but he says when we do those things, it will please God, it will honor God, because we are no longer in the flesh, but now living in the spirit. Now he's going to tell us in the next verses how we can do that. The way an unsaved person cannot, he said they cannot even submit to the word of God. He's going to tell us now how as a Christian, he's going to address how that is possible for us to cooperate with God and to submit to God's word, even when it's tough in our lives, that we might please the Lord. Again, it's not by us, but he's going to say in verses 9 through 11, and here's the key, he's going to say it is the presence of of Jesus Christ dwelling within you by the Spirit. And it's the presence of Jesus dwelling within you as a saved person that is going to give you the power and capacity to live according to the way that pleases and honors God. And this really focuses on the defining mark of Christianity. Verse 9, listen to the terminology. He says, but you, Christian, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he says, then he is not his or he's not saved, Paul's saying. And if Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, again, notice, who dwells in you. See, this is really the hallmark defining point of Christianity that separates it from every other religion. That we as Christians biblically understand we do not just follow the person of Jesus. Yes, we do. But we do not just follow the person of Jesus. We have living personal fellowship with Jesus who is risen and who actually resides within us by the presence of his spirit coming and inhabiting our lives. See, by faith, when a person 
confesses they're a sinner, and they embrace Jesus Christ as the Savior for their sin and choose to submit and surrender their life over to him, the Bible teaches that he literally enters our life in a direct and a personal way. He literally comes and dwells and, and resides within us to awaken us spiritually so we're no longer dead spiritually. He awakens us so that we might have fellowship with God who is spirit. And then he empowers us from within and changes us from the inside out. So it's not conforming the standards of Christian doctrine. Instead, it's the internal presence of Christ dwelling within us by the spirit who's empowering and enabling us to live according to the way the Bible says a Christian should live. This is what Paul is pointing out here. In fact, you should underline that phrase there in verse uh, 10 where he uses those four words, Christ in you. Christ in you. This, this is the key that he, by his spirit, when you open the door of your heart to him in faith, at the moment of your conversion, he came and now dwells within you. I want you to take note of a few things with me here in verses 9 through 11 as Paul talks about this. First of all, notice kind of from an overall observation, the interchangeable uses here in verses 9 through 11, the interchangeable use of the Spirit of God and also references to Jesus Christ dwelling within us. This is purposeful here. In verse 9, referring to the same person, he says, the Spirit of God... And then he turns right around the next phrase and then says the Spirit of Christ. And then notice also we read of the Spirit of God dwelling in us multiple times, but we also take note of Christ being in you, indicating things like the personhood and the deity of both Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not an essence or some force. You know, the force be with you, Luke. The, the, you need the force. No, the Holy Spirit is a person. The person of the Holy Spirit. The deity of the Spirit of God. The deity and personhood of Jesus. And regarding, in fact, here, the idea, again, the concept of the Trinity being evidenced here, even in these three verses, you notice talking about God's presence residing within the believer, we read here two times the Spirit of God dwells in you. Then we read the Spirit of Christ and also Christ in you, referring to Jesus, the Son. And then regarding the Father in verse 11, it says the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. There's the Trinity indicated right there, functioning as one in their personhood, but yet unified in their operation. And I think the key point that Paul is trying to make here in verses 9 through 11 is very simply this, that the indwelling presence of the Spirit is really the defining, identifying mark of a true Christian. Let me say that again. The point he's making is the indwelling presence of the Spirit is the identifying mark of a true, genuine Christian. Not just a decision to begin a religious lifestyle and I'm going, to start to, I'm going to start to live a little more spiritual. I think it's time for that in my life. No, the Bible doesn't say it's time to live more spiritual. The Bible says that we have to have a spiritual experience to start with. Jesus in the Bible referred to this as being born of the Spirit. He says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. There must come a time 
when at the start of a spiritual life, there's a spiritual experience where you accept Jesus Christ by faith and upon accepting him in faith, the spirit then enters and indwells your life. And God moves from being with your life to actually moving within your life and becoming a part of your being and dwelling within. Of the saved person, we read in these verses three times, there's that purposeful emphasis and repetition I hope you don't miss it in just the cursory reading. The Spirit of God, he says three times, dwells in you. Three times he emphasizes that in these verses specifically. And Jesus spoke of that experience coming to pass after his departure. Remember in John chapter 13, Jesus was telling the disciples that he was going to go away. And he said, where I'm going, you can't come. And they, upon hearing that, they were terrified. What are you talking about? Go away. I mean, he'd become a very helpful person to have around. When they didn't understand something, he taught and explained it. When they needed something, he did a miracle and provided it. When they had problems, he protected them. When, when a storm arose, he calmed the storm. I mean, they had become very dependent, do you understand, upon Jesus and his power and work in their midst. And now Jesus is saying he's going to go away. Well, Jesus' answer to that was this in John 14. He said, but I will pray the Father and he'll give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, Jesus says already, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then he made this statement in closure. I will not leave you orphans I will come to you. Wait a minute. How are you going to come to us, Jesus? Well, he was going to come to them in the person and the agency of the Spirit now. Jesus would no longer be with them physically in the flesh, but now spiritually, he said, I'm not going to abandon you and leave you like an orphan, though. That's not the point here. Okay, the work is done, so I'm just going to leave you abandoned like an orphan, and I hope you can survive on your own spiritually. No, Jesus, I'm not going to leave you like an orphan. I'm going to come back to you. I will be with you, but just in a different way. I won't be with you in the flesh. I will now reside within every one of you who embrace me by faith and accept me as Savior and Lord. I'm going to dwell within you by the Spirit. That's what our verses here in verses 9 through 11 are referring to. He says, you're not in the flesh if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. If Christ is in you, Verse 11, but the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and through his spirit who dwells in you. Again, that emphasis continually, the Bible teaches, that's the experience at salvation. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 6, that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit now. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that when we trusted in Jesus, when we heard the word of the truth of the gospel, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. 1 John tells us, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. The Bible teaches the presence of Jesus with us and within us by his spirit. In fact, please take note there in verse 9, if I can draw your attention there, almost in a parenthetical statement, Paul says in verse 9, now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, Paul says, then he's not his in other words, those without the spirit of the presence of Christ dwelling within them, he's saying they don't belong to Jesus relationally. The point he's making quite candidly is he says such a person's not saved yet. 
They're, they're, they're truly not a Christian yet. Here's the reason. Please mark this. You cannot be a Christian without Christ. You can't be a Christian without Christ. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to follow this Christianity thing. I like this Christianity. It's not too bad. And, and, and maybe you subscribe to Christianity. There's some good facts, some good truths. All right, I'm, I'm willing to... But listen, having Christianity doesn't make you a Christian. Having Christ in your life is what makes you a Christian. It's a relational thing. You can you know, subscribe to the truths of Christianity, even try and obey some of the principles of Christianity, but if Jesus is not an inward part of your life, you're not a Christian yet. You're not a Christian until you open your life by faith and invite the presence of Christ himself into your life to save you, to cleanse you within, and to rule and reign as Lord upon your heart. Until that's done, you're still separate. In fact, Jesus said on the day of reckoning that he's going to say to some people who even called him Lord and did ministry in his name, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. Listen, if you're here this morning, maybe you've been exposed to Christianity. Maybe you are embracing Christianity. I have to ask you, but have you ever embraced Christ? Have you ever personally embraced Jesus Christ for yourself? Because the Bible says if you have not done that, until you embraced Jesus Christ himself and let him take up residence inside of your life, you're not saved. You're not a Christian. And God doesn't want anyone to experience that misperception and have that identity crisis that results in eternal damnation. Such a critical and important thing. Well, Paul also speaks here also of because of the presence of Christ, the power of Christ, the power of God working within us. That's what he says at the end of verse 11 there. When he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, I think what he's referring to here is how the presence of Christ within us is what assures and guarantees that there is power, that there is ability and enablement for change and transformation, both ultimately as well as presently. Verse 11, I think he's alluding to that change and transformation ultimately, how in the same way Christ was risen bodily from the dead and his body was changed and transformed and he, and, and he arose in that glorified body that one day the Bible says the same is true for us. That because of the presence of God's Spirit within us, that even as Jesus was raised from the dead via powerful work of the Spirit, God is going to infuse supernatural life and, and give us a changed, resurrected, glorified body. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.14 that God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it describes this new glorified body that we're going to receive. But it's not just that power ultimately because we have a life still to struggle through here presently until we go to be with the Lord. And that's what Paul speaks of, the power of Christ presently for everyday spiritual living in verses 12 and 13 here. He says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now, what's a debtor? A debtor is someone who owes something to someone else. They're under an obligation to fulfill something. And what he's reminding us how is before a person saved, before I was saved, I lived indebted to my flesh. When my sinful nature made demands, I felt obligated to satisfy it. 
If it said, I want this, I felt obligated and indebted to give it what it wanted. And I did. I lived like a debtor to my sinful passions. And if I felt like being mean, I let myself be mean. If I felt like indulging something, hey, my flesh is making a demand. I need to serve it. I need to gratify it. We live in a way whereby we feel like we owe our flesh gratification. He says, but when you get saved, if anyone's in Christ, the Bible says, old things pass away, all things become new. And a change happens where now, he says, as a Christian, we don't owe our flesh anything. There's no obligation anymore to fulfill the demands of the flesh. Now, does my flesh still make demands? Oh, yes, it does. Does yours still send you solicitations and make demands and say, hey, I want you to fulfill me. I want you to act this way. I want you to pursue this, indulge that, do this. My flesh still makes demands, but what he's saying is, is we are no longer obligated to serve the flesh anymore. We're not under that obligation anymore. We can now say no. He says, verse 13, by a warning, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. In other words, a life lived habitually after the flesh is a life that's self-destructive, he's reminding us. He says, there is a way to live that actually kills a person. It's to live according to the flesh. But he says, you're not obligated to live that way anymore. You don't owe the flesh anything anymore as a Christian. The answer, he says, verse 13 is, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So there's the answer. When sin still solicits me and it still makes demands of you, Day by day and hour by hour, sin still makes its demands, but he says, but now by the Spirit, we can reckon the truth that, listen, I don't owe any obligation to my flesh, but I have a new obligation now. My obligation now is I owe obedience to the Spirit. I owe obedience to God by His Spirit prompting within to resist sin to say no to temptation and to instead, by the Spirit's help, put to death those sinful deeds of the body that arise within. The word put to death there is in the present tense. The idea is you don't just do it one time. Have you noticed that? You're continually putting that thing to death every day. Now, envision in your mind, what do you picture when you picture put to death? Well, I picture like, you know, just pretty radical, you know? When I picture put together, just throw my hands around somebody's neck and just, you know, just putting to death is a pretty drastic term. And I think he's saying this as a Christian. You can't fool around with your flesh. When you're being tempted to sin or you're struggling with some area of sin, I mean, you've got to be willing to be radical. I have people come to me at times, hey, I'm struggling with this and this habit, I want to, you know, I'm just I'm wrestling with it. But then I talk to them and I realize, look, they're not ready to get radical yet. They're not ready to get radical and say, look, I'm going to put this to death. I want to slaughter it, kill it, murder it, get it out of my life. Now, how do we do that? The Bible says abstain from fleshly lust that war against your soul. Is it, again, in self-resolve in our own strength? No, look what he says, verse 13. He says, by the Spirit. By the Spirit. We have a responsibility. Our part is to choose to put it to death, sin in our lives. But our responsibility does not negate the fact that we must do it reliant upon the Spirit. By the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. This is what Romans 8 goes on to further discuss, that we must live dependently and in cooperation with the Spirit. We have to starve the flesh. Starve the flesh so it's weakened. And we need to then 
in a sense, invest in the things of the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. And the question to ask is, do you desire this morning, as I do in my life, do you desire to have greater victory over your sin nature? I know I sure do. Well, the Bible is telling us here, Galatians 5.16 says this, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. See, it's not trying to stop sinning. Instead, it's proactively saying, no, I'm going to endeavor to try and walk in the Spirit more. And as you walk in the Spirit more, and as you let the Word of God become more important to you, the sword of the Spirit, that sounds like a weapon that could kill something, doesn't it? A sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Do you want to put to death the misdeed? Listen, walk in the Spirit. Get into the Word of God. Become more serious about the Word of God and watch how it will slay and destroy sin's power and influence into your life. Be in prayer. Stay connected to God in the things of the Spirit. And he says, by the Spirit. As we walk in the Spirit, he says, you'll find that you won't be fulfilling the lust of the flesh anymore. So again, it's not, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't. No, he says, just, just walk in the Spirit. And you find that as you start to walk in the Spirit... You'll be so busy walking in the Spirit that you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh in ways that you once did. You'll begin to see that change and transformation. 